The world around us is a four-dimensional world. There are three spatial dimensions and one temporal dimension. Many of these objects emit an almost unfathomable number of photons. As we developed as creatures on this planet, we gathered the ability to sense the world around us. And given the amount of information represented as photons, it is no surprise that we developed an organ for sensing photons. Be but because of the amount of photons that are involved and our relatively limited computational resources, it is necessary to develop shortcuts if you want to simulate a 3D environment in silico. So what is ray tracing? How is that different than what happens in games? And what does Ptolemy have to do with 3D graphics? All of this and more on this episode of Breaking Math. Episode 74, Lights, Camera, Action. I'm Sophia. And I'm Gabriel. And this is Breaking Math. We're going to do an episode on 3D graphics. So why this episode, Gabriel? Uh, because recently I landed a dream job of creating 3D graphics. It's still an engineering job, but I, I create models of trucks and planes and vehicles. And I also create them in a destroyed state as though they've been um, in an accident. And uh, I'm learning all about 3D modeling and video game graphics and simulations. And it's so exciting. And uh, so, um, and that it does sound pretty exciting because I know, uh, I know that uh, you know merging art and engineering is definitely one of your things. What what cool things have you learned recently? Because you've been doing this for what a couple months? Sure, yeah. So actually, for our listeners' sake, what's interesting about this episode is I have been in computer graphics now. I landed this job last November, actually. And just so you know, what software I use, uh, th th there's some fairly well-known software that I use, like uh, um, Autodesk Maya, as well as um, Adobe Substance Painter, and all of the other Adobe products like Photoshop and Illustrator. But I also uh, heavily use a free software that you can literally download right now on just about any computer called Blender. Blender is actually, at this present time, my favorite. So I, I've done a lot of practical applications of 3D modeling. It's amazed me how, how it works. Like, you know, if something's supposed to be, say, you know, a round cylinder, I can make like a six polygon hexagon, but then I'll just um, right click it and I'll say shade smooth. And suddenly the computer knows to make the, the light bounce off of it, although um, as though it's perfectly smooth, even though it's still a six-sided hexagon, if that makes any sense. Oh yeah, totally. Yeah, it's um, it's one of the uh, tricks you learn uh, early on. I think in uh, at least uh, it used to be um, in uh, Lightwave. Um, well, Lightwave is this old dinosaur computer program that nobody uses anymore. Yeah. Um, I, 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 I've technically done 3D graphics longer than Gabriel. However, it's been so long since I've done it that, that a lot of my knowledge is outdated. However, a lot of the math is something that I learned in, at the university. Yeah, there's, so there's math underlying all of this, and this is the exciting part. Now, I want to just geek out about computer graphics real quick. Uh, I think I first got introduced to computer graphics when I was probably in second grade, around the time uh, Terminator 2 came out, and they just began to use computers heavily in graphics in movies. And I think that's a James Cameron movie, the same guy that did Avatar and Titanic. He did Term Terminator 2. He did one movie before that with some heavy computer graphics. I think it was called The Abyss. Did you ever see The Abyss? Uh, no, I did not. Okay, check it out. So in The Abyss, uh, it, it, it's a movie uh, kind of like uh, E.T. Or, or Close Encounters of the Third Kind uh, where there's um, an alien species and it's far underwater. 
and this alien species has like a telekinetic ability where it can move water uh, in any shape. And um, it, I, I've always been very curious. There's a scene in the abyss where where, where, where this water like lifts out of a container and, and like moves around like a tentacle. That's all done using CGI. And I always wondered if the ability to do that in computers came before the idea for the movie. And I think James Cameron did that. And he thought, wait a minute, I could do some really cool stuff in Terminator with this. He then made a um, he made the T1000 Terminator, which is pure liquid metal and is able to, to turn into any shape all done with computers of course oh yeah and uh, and uh, there was a lot of um from what i recall a lot of advancements uh, made um during that uh, during the movie actually on like uh, computer uh, graphics uh, specifically i know that the way that they handled uh, reflection with uh, kind of like background uh, maps that ha- had been done but um getting it to work in, in a in a composited environment was the challenge yeah so we're going to talk about all that kind of stuff but i guess we're going to also talk about uh, uh we're going to answer one question which is what is the best cgi uh that we've uh seen yeah oh for sure for sure absolutely um, and actually, I, I, I'll i go and answer that now, if that's all right. I already said this before, but in the movie Terminator, back in my single days, that was one of the, my go-to conversations on dates because I was always blown away by uh, so many scenes in Terminator 2. For our listeners who haven't seen it yet, I highly suggest just go to YouTube and type in best scenes from Terminator 2 or just watch the entire movie. In this movie, you've got this villain that can turn into liquid metal. There's a part where he is in the floor, like a tile floor. He melts himself down into a tile floor then at the right time he just rises out of the floor and all of that was done with early cgi but it was done so spectacularly well that it was just mind-blowing um there's also a scene where um he jumps onto the outside of a helicopter that's still in the air and he breaks the uh glass on the helicopter with his helmet he then like melts himself and, and 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 as a blob like melts into the helicopter and then reassembles himself and that is some of the most spectacular cgi even to this day and we're you know 30 some years later uh it was done so well check out terminator 2 and pay careful attention to the graphics and how they do it so so for me that movie was the most impactful how about yourself sophia um, well, the, I think I'll just choose a recent one. Um, Pixar made a movie called Soul, which if you, on the surface doesn't seem like that much of a graphical achievement until you kind of really start watching it. And the kind of merging of 2D and 3D graphics that they needed uh, for that movie, plus some of the um, obviously new shaders, there's a lot to think about with that. What a fun episode, because I feel like this episode can fit both with Breaking Math as well as Nerd Forensics, where we're talking about both the um, mathematics that underlie something as well as the art and the emotional effect it has on us. So I just think that that's really cool. That's really exciting. So maybe we'll have uh, Millie uh, from Nerd Forensics, um, another podcast, although um, uh, more explicit than this one. Uh, We'll have her on um, to talk about, uh, you know, maybe some moments in 3D movies and talk about the algorithms used to achieve them and stuff. But for this episode, we're just going to kind of give an overview of the mathematics behind both like movie CGI and uh, video game CGI, which actually use different algorithms and approaches. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And I've got so much to say, especially what I've learned. Again, I'm only maybe, you know, what, six, five or six months into this. And I'm learning stuff every single day about how this works. So um, uh, and also for our listeners, anyone who wants to try this. 
I said earlier in this podcast, you can download Blender for free and there are countless tutorials on YouTube that you can do right now. Nice. Oh, and uh, before we go on, I'm going to just plug a couple of things. You can email us at breakingmathpodcast at gmail.com. You can follow us on Twitter at breakingmathpod. Um, you could uh, donate to our Patreon at patreon.com slash breakingmathpodcast. And uh, we do have a poster still for sale. Um, we're uh, if, uh, if in the past uh, you've bought a poster but then had to cancel your order, I... Um, I uh, recommend uh, buying now again. We got um, our whole process together. Um, so uh, yeah, just um, if if you had any issues with posters, just email us and we'll see what we can uh, get done for you. Yeah. But yeah, it's a poster on um, tensors, which are um, used in uh, the general theory of relativity, and it's just kind of a fun poster about how they work. <laughs> Right. So before in the intro, we talked about how many photons there are and just kind of to talk about like how many photons there are. Um, if you have a 60 watt light bulb, right, of white, you know, it's just a, uh, an average white kind of incandescent bulb. There's 8.21 times 10 to the 18th photons per second leaving that. So if you think about that many photons per second, if you think about them kind of like grazing your eye, it doesn't actually take that many photons for something to be visible. If it's like really, really dark, sometimes only hundreds of photons are entering your eye if like you're in the middle of like, st uh, like just starlight in the middle of like a dense forest or something. Yeah. Um, and so it really shows how few photons compared to out the out outside get into your eye. And it also shows how you can't really compute this, right? You can't just scatter a bunch of uh, light and then have it bounce around a virtual scene with all these photons. Because even if you reduce that amount of photon into like the billions, you're probably going to get a low resolution image, right? Yep. And uh, so how did the eye kind of evolve? I think we'll kind of might give us some uh, clues on uh, how to simulate these um, algorithms. Uh, does that sound good? Yeah, yeah. In fact, I think there's a really good spot to start here before we get into the math of computer graphics, actually talking about how the eye works and the, therefore it, it gives some context to what a computer is trying to do or what we're trying to do with the computer and making the graphics. Oh yeah, definitely. So let's talk about light sensing animals. Euglena is a genus of single cell flagellate eukaryotes. It's, a, it's just a single celled uh, little animal dude. Yep. Um, so it has a light sensing organ, but it, it's, it, it doesn't, it doesn't give any information except for brightness, right? Yeah. Yeah. I so it's so. like, am I in a bright area or am I not? It's basically a one pixel animal. Yeah. And yeah, that, that's actually, so, so it's awareness of its surroundings, as you said earlier. Yeah. It's just, is it brighter or is this darker? That's, that's all it's got. Yeah, and that kind of gives us a clue to some of the first stuff we have to uh, simulate. So if you think about a point light source, meaning kind of like a light bulb, an idealized light bulb in every direction, if we're just simulating 3D graphics for a Euglena, all we have to do is um, calculate the distance from the light, square it, uh, invert that, uh, multiply it by how bright the light is, and get uh, an approximation for how, m how many photons right hit this uh, animal. Yep. So that gives us a clue that brightness is already like you know part of the equation. So then we're going to take a look at uh, cup eyes, which are used by planarians. Uh, planarians are like these little um, kind of like flat, like teeny, tiny little worm creatures. Um, a lot of drug research is done on them. In uh, fact, the Bald Scientist podcast, we interviewed him on touring rabbit holes. Uh, he works with planarians all the time. That's his favorite um, worm, I believe. Oh, yeah. I would love to have him on this show, too. Yeah. Yeah. I'm sure he'd love to be on. Uh, and yeah. So, and the, so if you think, so the planarian, the reason why it has cup eyes is because if you put your hand in front of your face right now and you rotate it around, you're going to see that the place where everything is dark kind of changes. And if you take something kind of a brightly colored and put it near your hand, you'll see that your hand kind of turns into that color. So that's kind of how cup eyes work. They give you a general sense of direction. 
but um, pretty much nothing else. No clarity, nothing like that. Um, very, very little clarity. What's well, got so brightness and direction, correct? Uh, brightness and general direction. Okay. So it's like very low resolution. So what this tells you is that we're going to have to, um, you know, talk about the direction that the light is uh, uh, coming from, right? Mm -hmm. Of course, now instead of having just a, mi a minimum of one uh, cell to sight into the light, now we have a whole patch of cells, right? And that, and that evolves to become a pinhole eye. Uh, what happens is it becomes enclosed like a cavity within the animal. Uh, an animal that has this kind of eye is called a nautilus. And the way that this works is by simulating a pinhole camera. So, so think about this. If you have a red object to your left in front of you and a blue object to your right in front of you, the light from the red object is going to the back right part of your eye, right? Mm -hmm. And the light from the uh, blue object is going to the back left part of your eye. Yes. And let's now let's say we increase our pupils until they're the size of our uh, entire eye. So we have some freaky open eyes. As we increase this, more light, like at first only the light from the red, from the blue pupil can get to the spot in your eye through basically one path, right? Yes. But as you increase that size, the amount of paths increases. Uh, think about it kind of like taking a bundle of spaghetti and kind of like uh, letting it kind of go loose in every direction. So mm -hmm. it's kind of like uh, two cones on each side. Okay. So that's why things get, that's why things get blurry when you have uh, larger pupils, for example. Um, and uh, so that's kind of like what you're simulating with a pinhole eye. And then finally, we have lenses. Um, and uh, first, we're just a protective measure, uh, later filled up with fluid, uh, differentiated uh, normal evolution stuff. And what that did is it changed uh, the field of what we could see, right? Yes. So it uh, so for example, if light were going to hit a spot next to our pupil, it might hit the lens instead and then reflect back into our eye, giving us a greater, um, greater range of vision. Yep. Th that and the pinhole eyes tell us that we're going to, well, the pinhole eyes tell us that we're going to need to know where an object hits on the, hits on the screen. And the lenses tell us that we're going to, some, it, it's going to be something that, the lenses point towards us simulating the rays of light, right? Yes. So uh, without further ado, I think we should go into um, ray tracing and, uh, and uh, video game graphics. Sure. Now, obviously, there's a whole lot with respect to our vision that we didn't even get into, as well as the vision of other animals. Things like uh, rods and cones and differentiating the color palette that we're used to. Oh, yeah. Actually, um, you know what? It might be a good idea to talk very briefly about uh, cones. Sure. So red, blue, and green cones are used to sense the world around us. But um, so l l if you think about it, a computer screen, when it's showing yellow, it's showing red and green. Because yellow light triggers uh, red and green receptors about the same amount. So if you project red and green light into your eye, your eye is going to see it as yellow. Which means that if you have one of those LED bulbs um, and you set it to yellow, if you have a red object in that room and you have a green object in that room, the red object is going to look red and the green object is going to look green. However, if you have uh, like a, a light from like a sodium lamp, uh, specific, a specific type of sodium lamp called, uh, I think it's a sodium lamp called a monochromatic light. What will Or if you take like a prism and you isolate like, you know, the yellow and then uh, use a lens to scatter that around the room, the uh, green object and the red object will now appear yellow. And the reason why is because it's not, not fake yellow light anymore. It's real yellow light. And this actually does come up uh, during um, in some more intense uh, computer graphics stuff that we might talk about later. Rasterized graphics. Yeah, and I mean, rasterization really is kind of like the the last step in video game graphics, but it kind of gives a clue to how it's used. Yeah, yeah. 
So ray tracing is a term, it's actually an older term in the history of graphics, and it's made a comeback lately. There's a couple of graphics cards by, one of them is by uh, NVIDIA, and one of them is by... Um, AMD, yep. Very good. So the term ray tracing is actually a very old term. However, it's made a comeback recently with some uh, very advanced graphics cards by companies like NVIDIA, their RTX series, as well as AMD, their higher-end series that are capable of modern ray tracing. We're going to talk a little bit about that, but essentially it's getting a computer to simulate what we experience as light and reflection, and therefore for it makes video games look way more realistic. Oh yeah, for sure. So yeah, speaking of that, we're going to talk about how a wrong theory in physics led to a, a, a good formula for um, ray tracing. I love this one. We've actually done entire episodes of this podcast on wrong theories in physics, but one of them is making a comeback because it's so useful. I mean, I shouldn't say the theory itself is useful for describing the world, but it literally describes how computers simulate the world. So yeah, it's it's quite interesting. Yeah, and I wouldn't necessarily call it a comeback. I mean, it's been here for years since yeah. the second century. When did the term ray tracing first come out? What What's your familiarity with that term ray tracing? Uh, well, um, my familiarity with it is that in, in rendered computer graphics, right, like where you're not doing it live when you want more detail and control, yes. uh, ray tracing is what you're going to use, basically. And the reason why is because, um, as you'll see, computer graphics makes even more... A broad kind of generalization. So for example, area lights are something that is uh, relatively easy to um, do in ray tracing. So think of um, think of uh, fluorescent lights um, under a uh, diffuse panel, for example, in offices, for example. That's an area light. So uh, but rendering an area light um, in ray tracing is, we'll get into exactly what ray tracing is and we'll talk about why that is. Yeah. And so, like I said, uh, second century, right? Uh, Ptolemy was uh, creating a book on optics. And I'm sure uh, Ptolemy noticed that if you, if you put an object, right, let's say a coin, behind another coin, if they're both in line with your eye, one is going to be behind the other, right? Yes. So it makes sense that there would be some kind of mechanism for every, for kind of like every direction. So like, look, so like the top part of your eye might have a different mechanism than the bottom part of your eye. It's, it, it, it's not a, it's not an illogical theory, right? Correct. Yeah. I'd, I'd give him that. Give him some credit. It's not illogical. <laughs> and so what this, um, what this theory was, was that the eye has a bunch of these little rays within it that go out from the eye and bounce around the world and then report back to the brain. That's amazing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I thought that was amazing. What's also amazing is I wonder if there's any relation to seeing light up eyes, you know, t to that being embedded in our subconscious or something. My guess for that actually is um, that it comes from a, a, a predatory um, cat's. Because uh, the fovea of a cat um, it, uh, will reflect in light. Okay, okay, yeah. Because, you know, as soon as you see, like, red eyes light up, you know, uh-oh, the, the, the bad guy is going to get us. I'm talking about any any sci-fi movie or cartoon or whatever. Oh, yeah, I mean, the, <laughs> the, the so, like, uh, just, yeah, like, Titans, the Titans and that one... Uh, Attack on Titan? No, no, not Attack on Titan. The uh, the, the one with Hercules. Hercules. Okay. Sorry, <laughs> the one with Hercules. It's Hercules, though. But um, but yeah. So this uh, this uh, was actually refuted by um Hassan ibn al Haytham in a seven part book of optics called uh, Kitab al Manazir. Um, uh, and uh, it was like the first refutation. It was during um a scientific sort of philosophical revolution in the Islamic world that happened in the um. And I, be I believe this is like 10th or 11th century. So before, before it was, it was debunked people or rather this, this guy thought that eyeballs were like little flashlights. They literally sent out rays of light from each eyeball. Well, not even rays of light because rays of light implies that the rays of light go into the eye. It was the idea that light exists separately from eye rays. And then the, uh, that the eye, that the eye being a sensing organ 
sends out these uh, things into the world, which report back. Wow. And I mean, if you think about it, it's not the most like uh, like ridiculous thing, right? Because I mean, like if you look at if you look at like you know a tree growing over time versus like a blink, it's easy to think, okay, maybe there's these natural phenomena that are extremely quick that have to do with something as you know uh, nebulous as sensing, right? Yeah, yeah, I guess you're right. All right, again, again, I shouldn't talk too much smack about what people did or didn't know back in the day because you know right now, what do we know or what don't we know that will be made fun of? You know, in future years so yeah. oh yeah and what's cool about this this method of ray tracing though is that it totally works for simulating the real world, world around us right yes so like let's say you look at a mirror right yes the rays bounce off of the mirror um onto the scene around you and then it's, it's just like those uh, rays in uh, newton's optics uh where it just talks about like you know um apparent size and all that yes if you want to know what i'm uh, talking about just go go uh, look up optics on um on uh, Wikipedia and talk about and look at apparent size, mm -hmm. but yeah. The, so the cool thing about this is basically for each pixel you send out. Uh, well, I mean, in the simplest incarnation, you send out one uh, ray for each pixel. And uh, so let's let's talk about how this works. But before we talk about how this works, we're gonna have to talk about um, the intersection of rays and primitives. All right. So um, Gabriel, uh, yes. walk us through uh, rays and what they are in vectors. Oh, for sure, for sure, absolutely. Okay. So so rays. Okay. Okay. So a ray is like uh, it is. If you go with a mathematical definition from sixth grade, it is it is an infinite line that has a starting point. You could also think of a ray gun like pew pew pew. You know. Uh, it, it's something that, ha that has a start and it has a direction and no end necessarily. Yeah, and the start and direction are both represented by uh, triples, right? I mean, one is technically a point and the other is a vector, yeah. but they're represented pretty much the same way in the computer, right? Yes, yes, they are. And um, so the rays that we do for a ray tracing thing is, so the way that this is done is you pick, you, you draw kind of like a, like a square in space, kind of like where you're going to look out from. You could think of this as kind of like kind of like if you if you take a pic if you've ever like taken a picture but before you kind of put your uh, fingers in L's and uh, put them at opposite corners of a box. It's sort of like that. You set up a bunch of points um, in a grid like that. Yes. And then you have all the rays start at some point behind here, so behind the uh, square that all go out to the different points on the square. So that's how the rays are defined. Does that make sense? Yes. And uh, so that, so we send all these rays out, but how do we know how, what it intersects with, for example? So obviously, you know, with respect to, you know, what we see and how our eyes work and what our eyes detect, that's one thing, but then how a computer works, that's a whole another thing, which we'll get to an exciting point here in a little while. Oh yeah, and let's, touch, let's just think mathematically, right? Yes. So let's talk about some primitives. Um, there's a couple. There's a few types of primitives. A common one, though, is a sphere, uh, because you could technically render um, a scene with a perfect sphere in it. So a sphere is. Um, so how do you define a sphere, Gabriel? Oh gosh, um, a 3D object that, that of a given length, where every point on it is the same distance from the origin. Yeah, yeah. You got a center, right, and you got a radius. Yes. And so you can define the points of a sphere as such, uh, all p that are in S, such that p minus c. The, the length of that is equal to R. So now let's derive um, a ray sphere intersection, right? So Gabriel, if we have, if we know that uh, the, that, uh, that a ray um, is, the ray is A plus BT, right? For some, or some starting point A yes. and some direction B and T is greater than zero, right? Yes. So those are all the points that the ray sweeps out. Okay. So now if we know that a ray intersects with a sphere, right? It means yes. that it's going to be, um, it's going to satisfy the formula for a point on a sphere, right? Yes. So let's sit. So what we do is we set P to A plus BT. All right. So uh, from here, 
what you do is you uh, take uh, the t take the point. So, so you have this P minus C is equal to R, which means that A plus BT minus C is equal to R. And that's the point. So now we need to solve for T, right? Yes. So that's A minus C plus BT is equal to R. Mm -hmm. uh, we're putting A minus C in parentheses. Um, you with me so far? Yes. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. 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 And then algebraically, just, you know, BT equals R uh, minus in parentheses, um, or rather plus, because you got to subtract it from both sides. Just out algebraically isolate T. All right. So we got, um, so we got magnitude is equal to radius, right? Yes. So if we square both sides, we get um, A minus, uh, so we got uh, the, the whole A minus C uh, quantity plus mm. BT squared yep. is equal to R squared. Yes. Or minus R squared is equal to zero. Uh, so now we're going to set D to A minus C. So we got D plus mm. BT, um, just to, just for ease, so we don't have to keep writing A minus okay. C. So D plus BT squared minus R squared is equal to, uh, uh, to zero. So all we do is we plug that into Pythagorean formula. Wrong. So uh, what is our A term there? Okay, so the A term would be, um, let's see, it would be the coefficient of D squared, so. A B squared actually in this way. Oh. Because uh, we're solving for T, forgot to mention. Oh, of course, of course. Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so the coefficient of... Um, so for the Pythagorean formula, we you got your a, your a, B, and nothing. C, right? Yes. Uh, check it out. It's D squared plus 2DBT mm -hmm. plus B squared T squared minus R squared equals to zero. Mm -hmm. So in the Pythagorean formula, our little a you is lose. equal to B squared, right? Uh, let's see here. Okay. So that would mean our B would be equal to... 2DB. Okay, right. 2DB. And our C term would be equal to D squared minus R squared. Yes. And yeah, so just you just plug that into the Pythagorean formula so you get... Um, Negative 2db plus or minus the square root of 4d squared b squared minus 4b squared times uh, quantity d squared minus r squared all over 2b squared. Mm -hmm. And we're not going to talk about what that is, but basically you get the two points that it intersects the sphere, right? Yes. And uh, do, do you know why two points? Uh, because if it's a ray, well, if it goes all the way through it, it's going to be two points. Yeah. So you, it's exactly tangential, which would be technically one point, but. Yeah, so if you're shooting like a, if you're shooting a, 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 a basketball with like your ray gun that you were talking about earlier, yes. it'll hit it in two places. Correct. So yeah, so we got that data. Um, how would we? Um, any idea of how you'd get what the normal vector uh, where it hits? That's a really good question, actually. So the normal vector obviously is going to be the perpendicular point to any point on a sphere. So every point on a sphere, by definition, will have its own normal sticking straight up. So if you're going from the collision. Um, I would like, I think that, uh, if it was a straight on collision, you wouldn't d detect anything because it's, because your collision point is the same as the normal, but if it's any other no uh, point, uh, you were very close. Okay. Um, what you said was true. If you're looking at the, the point that goes directly from the ray to the center of the sphere. Oh yeah. 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 But if okay. you do it on the side, all you've got to do is take the point of intersection, subtract, uh -huh. um, the center of the, um, the sphere from that and, uh, normalize that. And that's your normal. Okay. Normal, yeah, just normalize it, and then that's your normal. As in the mathematical normalizing it. With, <laughs> do you think is too many? Because it's well, it's it's a normal thing to do. <laughs> it is pretty normal, you know. I mean, I, I I did it, you did it. I'm sure everyone's done it. Here. I mean, just, yeah, everybody can norm. Everybody's just gonna normalize using these normal vectors. Normalize using normal vectors. Can we tweet that? Yeah, we could do that. <laughs> I think actually I did that. Did you? I think so. I think that might have been one of the dorky tweets from last month. Yeah, at Breaking Math Pod. Yes. But uh, so what can we do with the data? We use a we we use a normal for reflection, and we use uh, the point of um the intersection and the ray from there. Uh, for uh, we actually use the normal for refraction too. 
So, um, Gabriel, uh, what's refraction versus re, what is reflection versus refraction? Physics three from college. My goodness, I blazed through that class. I'm sorry. So it was reflection versus refraction. Yep. Okay. So refraction. Think about it this way: if you are going through uh, water and you see that that a light ray shifts all of a sudden, that is refraction. Now that's what you see, but that's not the technical definition. Um, and I want to say that it has to do with uh, the angle of, that it hits. Yeah, it's not like uh, is it, I think it's like ten of theta one oh, let me, oh here it is I looked it up um, so the incident index um, so that's like for example for air it's like very close to one one point like zero zero one for like water it's like what one point six oh that oh that brings me back I believe one point six is right on the head yep yeah so if you so if you wanted to see um, like what uh, how light would change when it goes into a lens you take the incident index which is basically one times sine mm -hmm. of how it uh, the incident angle and the incident angle is just the normal I mean the the angle from the normal and uh, do you recall how to how to calculate the nor the angle from the normal? Oh gosh! I'll give uh, you a hint. A dot product. Okay, I don't. I, I don't. It's been too long since. So, sorry, guys. I'm still podcasting f five years out of grad school, and it's been <laughs> a little while. Yeah, so no worries. Yeah. Uh, so basically, well, the cosine of the angle between the vectors times the length of the, of the vectors is equal to um, the cosine. Yeah, co you could calculate the cosine with it. So if you have two two vectors pointing in the same direction, their dot product is going to be the same thing, right. which is like a cosine of zero, which is like one. If they're pointing uh, 90 degrees to one another, their dot product is going to be zero, uh, which means that their cosine is going to be 90 degrees. So you can actually use that to calculate um, uh, this using Snell's law, which is the N1 sine theta one equals N2 sine theta two. And if you notice, uh, light will kind of like It'll kind of straighten out with respect to the normal, right? Yes. As it goes through. But when it leaves the light, it does the opposite. Mm -hmm. And it turns out that that doesn't only work for light, but these imaginary light rays that for the eye. Um, it works perfectly, too. You can simulate a lens uh, um, uh, perfectly with this. So going back to that example with, with Minecraft, when we said that original Minecraft had two maps, one of them, I think it was for the opacity and one of them for color. I don't even think they had a map for displacement, like for that would cause a light re, uh, refraction if it went into the water. I don't I don't recall if they had that or not. Oh no, I, I, I honestly doubt they do because, um, so so basically ray, and the, for a reason I'll explain real uh, real quick. So just to finish up ray tracing, um, you if a light hits an object, you look at how far it is from the closest light um, or actually all the lights in the scene and uh, kind of like add together the inverse square law. Yes. Um, and uh, that's your new um, light amount. Yes. Um, and uh, so and so and also I want to talk real quick, quick about like, you know, blurry reflection. The way that that's done is when a light hits an object, you scatter tons of new rays out. So one ray becomes like a thousand or whatever, well, but not that, but like hundreds of rays or dozens. Right. Yes. And um, that's how you get things like, you know, like um, like really kind of like smooth um, mapping, uh, like more photorealistic kind of stuff is uh, uh, the, the increasing the amount of bounces that something uh, goes around the scene. Yes. Yeah. And this is uh, contrasted with um, real time graphics. Um, well, in the way that that works is that objects are represented by vertices and polygons. And these are kind of ob objects in like, you know, you create a scene with these um, polygons and stuff in it, which we'll talk about how to do in a second. But basically what you do is you map them into the map you map them into the camera's field of view by using a matrix so you take everything and you squish it down so like so it would so you know how like when you're a little kid you might think that, a, that the mountains are kind of small you do that with math 
he makes far far away things small and uh, close things uh, big, and you just kind of smoosh everything down together. So suffice it to say, it's harder to do things like refraction with that kind of thing because then you have to set up new virtual cameras, um, which is how it's done in modern uh, compu computers because virtual cameras don't really cost much to spin up, but it required a lot of like complicated like um. A lot of innovative algorithms to do the same thing with real-time graphics that you do in uh, ray tracing because ray tracing will always come out a little bit ahead as far as that kind of stuff goes. But yeah, you're talking about um, a Minecraft and how uh, and the differences between real-time and raster graphics. Yes, exactly. So this is an exciting thing. And, and again, this is where it would be helpful to have a YouTube video for a podcast. For our listeners, if you get a chance, just check out uh, ray tracing in Minecraft. In fact, for all you Minecraft players out there who happen to have one of the newer graphics cards that can handle ray tracing so something like a, 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 a nvidia rtx 2060 or 2070 or a 3060 or above any of those things or even the um, amd equivalent if you go to if you um, open up minecraft and just search for nvidia there are some uh, worlds that are made with um, ray tracing enabled and they have not only the two maps i mentioned earlier i think they have a total of i want to say six maps where the other six all tell the light what to do and when you play the game, it's just spectacular because um, as you walk by a metal object, the light bounces off of it and it looks absolutely shiny. You see your real reflections in things. Uh, when you w walk by water at night, you'll see the uh, light beams from the, uh, the moon and it reflects on the water. And as the water moves, so does the reflections. So it's an eerie, I, I almost want to call it an uncanny valley effect, but it is like, it it's almost hypnotic to look at something with such low polygon counts, such blocky graphics, while at the same time having textures that are convincingly hyper-realistic. It is, it's really magnificent. Sounds good. Um, yeah, um, I, and the reason why modern GPUs can do that, by the way, is because if you think about ray tracing, we could send out each ray at the same time, right? Yes. And you'd get the same scene um, because the scene is um, is essentially static, basically. Yes. And uh, so that means that if you have these new graphics cards uh, that both go quickly and have a lot of... Uh, the way the graphics cards works, it has like thousands of little computers inside mm -hmm. of it. Um, so if you can all do... If you do all these thousands of calculations at the same time, that's how that works, basically. Yes, yeah, exactly. And in any, any of these worlds, basically, as we've said thus far in the podcast, uh, the, the, the computer calculates where the source of the light is from. So if you're outdoors, your main source is gonna be the sun uh, or the moon uh, if it's, um, nighttime and then from that it calculates both the you know the the, the strength uh you know the the intensity and the direction of the shadows and also the reflection so if you've got wood you're not going to have a reflection but again as you walk by any kind of metal material you can have reflection also nvidia has a website where they literally encourage users to create their own ray traced enabled textures i was talking to my daughters about making some lightsabers that emit light and a really cool environment where you see the reflection of your own lightsaber in the environment around you we just thought that would be the coolest thing in minecraft oh yeah for sure yeah definitely and that's a that's a cool thing as graphics gets more and more um 
kind of like advanced we're going to be seeing these we're going to be seeing like you know these uh these developments of um stuff looking more realistic and then perhaps later looking less realistic kind of like you saw with uh, computer graphics from the 80s to the uh where they become stylistic as well yes and so we talked a little bit about how uh, real-time graphics works but let's kind of break that down a little bit more so the way that it happens, you have a, a graphics pipeline. So first you kind of take your objects and you morph them, do whatever you're doing to them. So for example, if you're doing like a game where somebody's walking, you deform what's called the T-pose, which is with arms out to the sides uh, facing forward. And you deform that uh, using a rigged uh, model, which we'll talk that, about that a little bit more next time. But you uh, deform it um, and you have this new set of points, right? Let's say we have a camera, right? And we're looking at this object and this object is moving forward. Mm-hmm. How can we, um, the way that we represent it moving forward is actually with a matrix so this person this person uh this character would be walking kind of like the way that they see it is in place yes however their kind of position matrix is moved um as they walk which causes uh, the um, illusion of walking and then you when you multiply that by the camera plane um you get a projection onto uh, screen coordinates yes so you know where all the um polygons are and then uh finally you do clipping and what clipping is is you take all these uh all these uh triangles and you see if they intersect one another and uh if they do um you kind of clip them uh, you kind of trim them to size right yes and you also clip things really close to the camera and really far away from the camera to minimize uh what you do you know if you ever want to see a really great illustration of all the all the concepts all the concepts that you're talking about just do a search on really bad CGI or beginner CGI. Uh, since I've been modeling myself, I've joined a number of Facebook groups all about CGI, and people will often, as a joke, put their first ever animated rig, and it is so poorly done, but it's obvious that the steps that the character is taking don't at all line up with their movement through through the world. So it's, it's quite interesting. Oh yeah, for sure. So let's say we have a bunch of objects in a scene, right, in a video game. Mm-hmm. How do we know which uh, polygons are in front of? Uh, well, actually, let's just say we're doing a ray tracing scene, right? We're ray tracing a scene with like, let's say, let's say a million spheres, and let's say we're doing like, you know, my first ray tracer program. Uh, how would you check which sphere a ray intersects with? Okay, so with uh, again, I'm assuming, and again, I hope I'm I'm understanding you you correctly, but all the information in terms of placement of the objects and the size of the object would be in, would be put in by the original programmer, right? Um, oh yeah, yeah. We're imagining that we have this, we have like a million objects stored in in memory. Okay. And and uh, they're all within the view of the camera. Um, it, in certain, some are in front of others, etc. Yeah. How would you tell uh, which object um, a ray um, hits first? Okay, so uh, probably just from the from the player standpoint, probably the intensity. Well, I, well, but, but, well, I'm just talking about. Um, it, we're talking about a rendered scene here, okay. actually. But we're talking about like you know, send you send the ray out. Yes. How do we know which object it intersects with? Because it might intersect with more than one, right? Okay. Yes. Yes. So what what would you do if you were a ray tracer? Okay, so you mean if I was the one who okay, so if you were a ray tracing program. Okay, okay. So so based on the instructions uh, given by the programmer who made the scene, you know, there there there's going to be a database or a matrix that's going to say, you know, exactly like with a it'll have a numerical value with how far apart things should be and like that's going to inform how the ray tracing is done and is yeah, that, that, yeah, that's a, that's part of it. But if you re- if you think about it too, like when you're writing this program, you're gonna have to check every object, right? Yes. Because you're gonna have to check does it intersect this object? Because the computer doesn't know that off the hand, right? Yep. And that can take a long, long time because you got to check not only which objects it intersects, which you got to test every object for, yep. but which is the closest. So you have to save all the intersections and uh, get the one that's nearest to the camera, right? Yes. 
So the way that um the way that this is handled is with something called bounding volume hierarchies sometimes. Okay. And I didn't I did not know that. That's that's a new one. And and it's a really cool algorithm. So what it, what happens is so let's say you have these million objects, right? Yes. About half of them are on one side, about half of them are on the on the other, right? Yep. So we could do two boxes and calculate which which objects are within this box, which objects are within the other box. Mm -hmm. And which objects are, you know, uh, perhaps within both boxes. Mm -hmm. And then we divide it again, but in a different axis, mm -hmm. axis, and we divide each box so it contains exactly half the objects. Mm -hmm. And we keep doing that until we have this tree in memory. So now if we wanted to see which um, object array intersects with, we send it out and it hits the bounding volume hierarchy. So yes, we know at least one object is gonna be made, right? So if, if, if I'm understanding you correctly, the bounding box hierarchy is a computer's way of just kind of eyeballing it. Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> like yeah, like, uh, you know, it's real, uh, oh, I get it now. But no, no, but it totally is a way of like eyeballing it because uh, that was good. Because um, um, it's kind of what you do naturally, right? If, if somebody told you to find something, you could be like, okay, is it in this side or that side? Yes. So you send out this ray now. So you send out this ray now, and now it has a check. Okay, does does it fit in the left mil left half million or the right half million? And then there it's like the front 250,000 or the back 250,000. And then, so basically, all you have to do there is check about 20, um, 20 pairs of objects before um, seeing what intersects with uh, this piece of light. Fascinating. Wow. Wow. Okay. Cool. That's, that's yeah, that, that's, that's exactly a computational eyeball on it. Oh, I know. Yeah. That, that's what I really liked about computer, that we really like about computer science. It's the science of being lazy. We've discussed the algorithms that are used for the two primary forms of computer graphics one type for realism and the other for speed. Both of these algorithms rely on simplifying the way that light actually interacts with our eye, both over space and time. This was one of the dreams of Ada Lovelace, one of the first computational mathematicians. On our next episode, we talk about more specific algorithms for computer vision and sometimes that films and video games have driven these advancements. I'm Sophia. And I'm Gabriel. And this has been uh, Breaking Math. Email us at breakingmathpodcast at gmail.com. Support us at uh, patreon.com slash breakingmathpod. Uh, tweet at us at breakingmathpod. And also, uh, Gabriel, you had a few um, recommendations for resources uh, if anybody uh, feels gung-ho after this episode, and I have a couple too. Oh my gosh. I, yes, yes, I do. I do. So first of all, I'm, I'm working with um, a lot of my nephews, as well as um, one of my uh, high school friends, 14-year-old uh, son. Everybody is interested in computer computer graphics right now, um, mostly because of me. Uh, Blender is free. It's freeware and it's fantastic. So I would yeah, it's say industry, it's industry grade. Yes, it is. It is. And not only that, but there's so many websites that, that uh, will offer one free course and then they'll offer a lot of paid courses. If you like the free stuff, I did the entire free course available at cgboost.com. I don't mind promoting them because it's free. You know, and um, I, I I did the course where, where you make a 3D model of a bunch of apples in a bucket, and I showed that to you last time you were at my house. Oh yeah, for sure. Yeah, it is amazing. And you literally like like you you take uh, actual photos of apples and and you map them onto a 3D apple that you've created, so it, it actually looks photorealistic. Then you add a bump map to it, so that like the 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 apple peel is like uneven and bumpy, like an actual apple. It's amazing. That does sound cool. Yeah, yeah. So just. Uh, I would download if you're looking for a hobby this summer, uh, you know, uh, just download Blender and go to YouTube and type and type either sculpting in Blender or make something in Blender. I saw somebody do an Iron Man mask in Blender. It was really and then 3D print from Blender. You can do that. 
Oh yeah, and if uh, you wanna if you wanna look up uh, you know some of the uh, ways that um, people have advanced uh, the state of the art, um, I would always check out SIGGRAPH papers. There's websites on the high seas where you can find it. Uh, you could also email the uh, authors, um, and they could they could take their time, but they usually will send you a paper. And uh, a lot of times, if you go to their website too, um, which there's often these computer graphics people have websites, you'll find sometimes models, sometimes uh, programs, uh, sometimes C code, you know, whatever to uh, kind of interact with this stuff and there's whole communities of blender plugins uh shadle, shaders models etc all right sounds good oh and also for next time we will have a, a discord set up for breaking math fans so until next time lights camera action or something i don't know how to end this episode <laughs> <laughs>